Good morning, everybody. My name is Kimberly, and I almost spilled my water. I um, <clears throat> am one of the pastors here, and we are so glad, as Peter said, that you are worshiping with us this morning, especially if this is your first time. We want to extend a warm welcome to you on this fourth Sunday of Advent. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. Father God, we come before you this morning humbled, anxiously awaiting the celebration of your birth later tonight. We pray, God, that as we continue in worship, as we hear what it is that you have for us, Lord, that we can be a people who await you anxiously, but also await you, Lord, with joy. We pray these things in your name. Recently, my husband and I watched the documentary American Symphony on Netflix, and I will say that if you have not watched it yet, I will not spoil anything. I think anything I say about it this morning is in the previews. Um, I knew that I'd wanted to watch it for a while, but I've been putting it off because the previews alone made me very weepy. I don't know if any of you can relate to that, but finally we watched it last weekend, and the Lord mercifully allowed me to make it through in one piece. I did, however, find myself thinking about it for days after, even as I was reading through the text for today, especially the Annunciation, our text from Luke. As the story unfolds, Sulaika Jawad, who is one of the main characters in the the documentary, is talking with her um, partner, the musician. She says, I feel like we're living a life of contrast. And later in the film, she explains that on her first day of chemo for recurrence of leukemia, that is the same day that John is nominated for 11 Grammy Awards. At one point, Batiste also articulates the same tension, saying that I win the biggest prize in music and come home, and she is back in the hospital. Jawad reflects, we have both had so many good things happening in our life, but also so many incredibly hard things. She says, I just don't know how to hold such extremes. At one point in the film, they go from a scene of a wedding, which of course is a beautiful and joyous occasion, and right after that, they go to Batiste shaving her head as she prepares to be admitted to the hospital. Keeping with the theme that Mother Sarah introduced us to in the first week of Advent, this idea of who are the people of Advent, I also believe that the people of Advent live a life of contrast. We are a people who live in between two kingdoms, a phrase that I actually took from Jawad's 2023 memoir. We live in a world of darkness and of light, of highs and lows, both in our own personal lives, but also in the world around us. Often these things exist at the very same time. We heard Maya just a few minutes ago reflect on her experience in her career, considering what it means to live an abundant life with Jesus alongside the reality of human brokenness in the workplace. This morning, as we are gathered here today on this fourth Sunday of Advent, some of us have entered these doors happy, excited. Maybe we've had an especially good week. We are looking forward to Christmas Eve tonight, to celebrating the birth of our Savior We are ready for time with family and friends. Some of us, though, may be in a much different place. We might have come off a particularly hard week, 
or even a hard year, a couple of years. Christmas might be especially difficult. It may feel especially lonely. Some of us are dreading tonight and tomorrow. And some of us are having a hard time finding hope in the resurrection. Tonight, most of us, I would be willing to bet, will sleep in warm, dry, comfortable beds. While on the very edge of our property and all around our city, people sleep illegally in tents or in cardboard boxes, trying to keep the elements at bay. When I wrote this, I, of course, didn't know that it was going to be pouring down rain today, and so that feels even more significant. This morning, as we freely worship Jesus Christ and with anticipation look forward to the celebration of his birth, there are Christians reading and preaching from these very same texts in other parts of the world who are not free to worship as we do because of persecution, war, violence. Recently, the Rev. Dr. Isaac Munther, a pastor at Christmas Lutheran Church in Bethlehem, explained that for his church's nativity scene, they chose to put the infant Jesus in a pile of rubble. Munther commented that if Christ were born today, he would be born in rubble. In our two nativities at home, our baby Jesus lays in comfy mangers imagined by the artists that create them, much different than a pile of rubble. And it should be noted, as my husband reminded me, that one of our baby Jesuses actually does not lay in the manger. Currently, it is the lamb in the manger. Our child, our 11-year-old, as most 11-year-olds do, continues to mess with me and put the lamb in there. But she does say, Mom, it is the lamb of God after all. So... Point taken. In the book, How to Save Your Marriage, the most insane love story ever told, author Harrison Scott Key, in talking about a turning in his own marital crisis, writes, darkness is all around, but hope, too. On this very day in the church calendar, we experience this very real sense of contrast. And this year, it is sort of different than most, right? Where this morning, like literally in this day, we are celebrating the fourth Sunday of Advent. We are still awaiting the celebration of Christ's birth. But just later today, a few hours from now, we will celebrate his birth. The waiting will be no longer. But we are still waiting, right? Things can often feel imbalanced, disparate in this life. I'm sure that each of you has examples in your own life and a story that maybe you've heard from a friend or a coworker, or in something that you've read or witnessed lately. In his sermon last week, Peter quoted scholar Alan Jacobs, who said that Advent is the most complex of the church's seasons, with its remembrance of God's former mercies and its looking forward and trust in God's promises. Sometimes it can feel like all of life is Advent, this remembrance of God's mercies and the looking forward and trust. In 2017, NPR ran a story that explored the difficulty of decision-making. It noted that we make dozens of decisions every day. Most of them are relatively easy. We probably don't even really think about them. Just this morning, I had to decide whether to wear rain boots, which I did decide to wear, or nicer, fancier shoes. But practically speaking, rain boots felt like the better choice. Sometimes we're trying to make decisions such as, should I drive on I-35 and risk the traffic? Or should I take a back road? Sausage or pepperoni? Decisions every day, right? 
Wisely, though, the piece noted that there are real hard decisions that we make, the types of decisions that we agonize over, the ones that bring us sleepless nights. They speculated that these decisions are hard for two reasons. First, because no single option clearly dominates the alternatives. And secondly, because we expect our choice to have significant consequences. Similar to making hard decisions, this life of contrast can feel a bit or a lot maddening at times. In some form or fashion, most of us have likely prayed or pleaded with God about the very real tensions in our world, in our own lives. They are, of course, the result of a broken world in which we live and a reminder that things are not as they should be, as if we needed to be reminded of this. So what are we to do? What are we to do about these contrasts? How are we to hold such extremes? In today's gospel, we come across Luke's account of the Annunciation, Gabriel's joyful message to Mary, a narrative that most of us have likely heard before. Just before this account, early in Luke, we come across the story of a priest named Zechariah. On one day, Zechariah was performing his priestly duties, and I imagined this. I sort of imagined my kind of Sunday mornings. I imagined him straightening chairs, adjusting the thermostat to make sure that it's not too hot or too cold so that everybody is comfortable and somebody doesn't ask you to turn it up or down. (laughs) That happens many a Sundays. I imagine him, too, preparing for service in prayer, preparing his own heart, praying for the people who would attend, who would walk through those doors. And then, out of nowhere, unannounced, the angel of God appears before him. And understandably, Zechariah is startled. He doesn't know what to say or what to do. The message translation says that he was paralyzed. Gabriel did his best to calm Zechariah, telling him that he thought what he had for him was good news. Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, would have a son, and they would name him John. He goes on to tell him of all the things that John will do in his life. Perhaps most notably, that John will get people ready for God. And being human, Zechariah responds, like most of us probably would, really? You expect me to believe this? I am old. My wife is old. There is no way that this can be. Gabriel tries to reassure Zechariah again, telling them he was sent to him specifically to give him this message. But ultimately, ultimately we see that Zechariah does not believe, and because of this, he is not able to share this news before John's birth. Zechariah and Mary's encounters with Gabriel begin in very similar ways, with Gabriel appearing before them out of nowhere, sharing the craziest of news but their encounters end much differently. While Zechariah is afraid and finds what Gabriel says to be unbelievable, Mary seems to be more confused than afraid. Rather than responding quickly and out of fear, she ponders what she has been told. She is perplexed, sure. She wonders what type of greeting this is. Upon his arrival, Gabriel tells Mary that she is favored by God and that God is with her, and now comes the really preposterous part. He proceeds to tell her that although she is a virgin, she will become pregnant, and the child in her womb will be there by the power of the Holy Spirit, and the child will be the promised Messiah. Mary responds with a sincere question, asking, how is this possible? 
seemingly trying to make sense of what it is that she has been told. As he did with Zechariah, Gabriel reassures her, telling her not to be afraid. Now imagine, if you will, a young woman, presumably unimportant, an everyday person, engaged to be married, receiving the message that Gabriel had for her, a message that revealed the unimaginable role that she was going to play in the work of God. Honestly, I'm surprised that she didn't pass out from shock, run away, laugh nervously. The latter is definitely what I would have done. You can ask my husband, Steve, about my nervous laughter during our wedding vows. (laughs) Think about the implications, though, that this had for Mary as a woman in the first century. Today, we have the advantage. We have the advantage of knowing that what Gabriel shared with her really would happen. And it is pretty much the best news ever. But in a very real way, Mary was facing something wildly complex. And considering Mary's story, I can't help but think back to a 2021 New York Times piece that Tish Harrison Warren wrote, in which she describes Mary and maybe her feelings and her experience as bright sadness. I actually had the opportunity to reference that two years ago in an Advent for sermon, and it has stuck with me ever since. Mary's faith is often muted. She is all too often seen really as a bystander in the story of Jesus, especially in Protestant non-Catholic circles. A young girl who just kind of goes along with things, having little agency of her own. She lived in an oppressive society under the wicked rule of Herod, where life as a woman was not easy. She was from an unremarkable place called Nazareth, the wrong side of the tracks, if you will. But it was in the midst of this life, in this in-between place of sorts, that the Annunciation occurred. Given all of these complexities, How was she able to hold such extremes and still give her yes? In her place of bright sadness as a young, poor, unwed mother who would give birth to the savior of the world, I think that Mary has something to teach us about living intention, about living this life of contrast. She didn't go straight from hearing Gabriel's news to exclaiming, exclaiming, I am the Lord's servant, let it be with me, just as you've said. Also notice that Gabriel didn't give her any guarantees about how things would go for her. He didn't promise that everything would be just fine or that she would live a life of luxury and riches. He didn't say that Joseph, her fiancé, would be understanding about this very precarious situation that she was in. He didn't promise her protection. I'm sure that she was aware of the implications of what it meant to be an unwed mother in her culture. But despite all of the reasons to say no, It seems that it was because of her belief in a just and a fair God that she said yes and even found joy in her calling. New Testament scholar Louise Jotroff notes that obedience to God's will does not destroy one's self-confidence but builds it up. Mary did not know all that would happen next. She likely still had fears and questions, but in her faithfulness, she chose to say yes. Like Mary, we too can say yes in faithfulness, because we do follow a just and a fair God. We will likely still have questions, fears, doubts at times. We cannot fully see the outcomes of our choice to follow Jesus. But just as Mary did, we can freely and joyfully respond to the invitation to participate in the work of God. In the aforementioned American Symphony, at a point of reflection, Batiste says, you have to confront the brutal reality 
But at the same time, you have to have a completely unwavering faith. We may not think of the Annunciation as a brutal reality, but as we consider more fully Mary's situation and the context in which she lived, we can begin to see that, in fact, Mary's situation was not an easy one. If we look to her words in the Magnificat, we can see the realities of the world in which she lived, but we can also see the faith that she had in what God would do and what God had done. She sings, He has looked with favor on the low status of the servant. He has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. He has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. Mary has been given this unbelievable message from Gabriel. And in Mary, a profound act of faithfulness is on display. Even in the midst of brokenness and the unknown. The people of Advent are a people who live a life of contrasts. But I also believe that the people of Advent are a people of remembrance. And we are a people who follow a just and a fair God. It is in remembering what God has already done, the ways in which God has acted in fairness and with justice, always arcing toward love, that we await not only the celebration of his birth, but his second coming with great expectancy. So how do we live in this liminal space, living with both gratitude for the good and celebrating the good that is happening around us, but also holding care, holding with care the suffering in this world? At the age of 109, now more than 100 years later, Viola Fletcher can still vividly recall the smell of her thriving neighborhood burning. In this time, which was referred to as America's, in this neighborhood, which was referred to as America's Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, she is recalling what is called the Tulsa Race Massacre. Mother Fletcher, as she is affectionately known in her community, is the oldest living member of this, survivor of this massacre. She was just seven years old when a white mob burned the Greenwood District of, of Tulsa to the ground. In 2020, Mother Fletcher and three other survivors of the massacre filed a lawsuit against defendants, including the Tulsa city of Tulsa and the Oklahoma Military Department. They were seeking restitution for impacts of the massacre. Despite multiple dismissals, they continued forward and filed repeatedly. But earlier this year, it was dismissed. Their years-long effort came to an end. In response to this dismissal, Mother Fletcher said, I will not be dismissed. Our stories, our pain, our demand for justice cannot be erased and ignored. The dismissal of this case sent a chilling message that the crimes committed against our communities can be swept under the rug, forgotten, buried. But we will not allow that to happen. Fletcher, a lifelong Christian, says, we will continue to fight for truth, for justice, and for the acknowledgement of our suffering. They will not bury my story. Can you imagine 102 years later? Most of us would be lucky to live that long. But can you imagine 102 years later, still fighting for justice, still holding out hope? Despite such a brutal beginning, Mother Fletcher's life continued like all of us. She had ups and downs. She married. She moved away from Oklahoma for a time. She raised a family. She worked. She experienced loss of her own but she continued on. 
In a situation where after 100 years, justice has not been yet achieved, where most of us would have given up, Mother Fletcher is a person of remembrance. She is a person of unwavering faithfulness, waiting for the world to be set right by a just and fair God. On this fourth Sunday of Advent, as we await the arrival of King Jesus, we will do well to ask ourselves, what are the things that we need to remember? In our reading today from Romans, Paul proclaims that because of the power of God to bring salvation to everyone who has faith, we are strengthened. We are reminded that the mystery referred to in Romans, God's plan has now been fully revealed to us, and in this we can find our hope. Today, we have the knowledge, the revelation, it is grounded in the advent of Christ Jesus, who by the power of the Holy Spirit was born of the Virgin Mary and became man. And it is because of this that we say, to God be the glory. It is in remembering who God is and because of the strength that we have access to through him that we can continue on in this life of such extremes and not just continue on in apathy or ambivalence. We will likely still have moments of doubt, questioning and hesitation. I am reminded, though, that it is especially in those times of doubt, of questioning, of suffering, of pain and hesitation, that a community of faith is that much more important. It is in these times that we can look to the faith and the support of one another's. It is in these times that we can bear one another's burdens. And it is through remembering, reading, and meditating on scripture and the story of the saints that have come before us that we can find hope and peace that is needed to live in this world of contrast, living with the end in mind. In the ending song of the musical Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Reminda captures this idea of remembering and living with our end in mind. The climax of the song is when Hamilton's widow sings about the things that she has done since her husband's death. She sings about carrying on his legacy, talking about speaking against slavery, founding an orphanage in his name. And she asks, when my time up, my, when my time is up, have I done enough? Will they tell my story? As we are remembering and telling the story of God, are we telling it with words, with our words, but are we also telling it in ways in which we talk, in the ways in which we move through this life of contrast? And God's story reflected in, is God's story reflected in the decisions that we make, the ways in which we interact with others, the places in which we invest our time and our money? Are we reflecting the love of Jesus in a way that will be remembered? Are we recalling what, with great awe the story of the child born in Bethlehem to a virgin named Mary? Mary's question to Gabriel asking, how can this be, is not dissimilar from what we are called to do in faith believing in and proclaiming something that has not yet come to an end, something that we cannot fully see or touch, something that at times can feel unbelievable. In her encounter with Mary, Gabriel, Mary was faced with one of those hard decisions, the type of decision that we lose sleep over. And she said yes, because she is living with the end in mind, not just in her own mind, in her own end, but all of our ends. In this world of darkness and of light, Do we dare put our hope in Jesus? In doing the work of following Jesus, remembering what God has done thus far and promises to continue to do, we are able to live in this world of contrast. There is no promise that it will be comfortable or easy, but we can find places of joy and peace even when things are hard, and we can proclaim this good news to others. 
In the practice of remembering what it is that God has done for us so far, we look forward with anticipation to what God will still do. Not even the person with the most vivid imagination could have dreamt up all that God has done thus far in the world. And so as we wait, sometimes anxiously, sometimes in fear, sometimes doubting for what he is yet to do, we do this with hope. In the moment that Mary said yes, embracing the divine promise born by an angel, when she dared to believe that she was favored by God, it meant for us Jesus' coming, the divine mystery that Mary would hold in her womb. And so as we live in a world where there are so many good things happening all around us and so many incredibly hard things, we continue on in faithfulness and hope because God is able. God came to us in our messiness as a helpful, helpless infant, and we praise God, remembering that in Christ Jesus, God's power and wisdom are on display. And today, we need only wait a few more hours before we get to return to this very room tonight to celebrate the birth of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. At this time, I invite you to stand or kneel. Throughout the season of Advent, we have been spending some extra time in silence and prayer 